coming up, and they parked the green car oh. in front of your house, that meant you either died or something bad happened. Mm. You hear people hollering at uh, Vietnam vets. And here we were on gurneys and that, and they were still hollering at us. Calling us baby killers, I remember that. And did a rat patrol at night. Stupid. I, I thought I only died twice, and then, as you know, those that died young, 19 and 20, 18, 17, they're on that wall, will never have the opportunity that I've had. I'll grow old, but they'll always stay the same. Well, we're rolling, John. Yes, sir. How's it going? Doing well. Good, good. We have very special guests today. Yes, we do. Gil Hernandez from Elko, Nevada. And I ended up kind of meeting him through, I actually saw something on social media about him uh, through uh, Chuck Adams. Good and friend. yeah, very good man and a legend, as you are as well. Oh. <laughs> yes, you are. He is. But I saw something he had posted, and and uh, you know he was going to meet up with you, and and I thought, man, he's down here in Elko, so close, you know. And I was thinking, oh, I'd love to get somebody like you, especially when I saw you know read his, the story he put on you about uh, being a Vietnam veteran, which. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate the service that you put in for this country and all of us today. But uh, so I got a hold of a friend of mine, Jim Algerio, who I, I thought if anyone's going to know Gil, it's going to be uh, Jim. And sure enough, he did. And we were fortunate enough to have you contact us back. So sincerely appreciate that. So, Well, I just appreciate you guys. Uh Doing what you do, you know, informing uh, archers out, out there or people that are willing to try to learn the sport that we have yeah. and the opportunity there. It's a good family sport, as you know, uh, yeah. if you had your family members in there before. But uh, it's, a, it's a really good opportunity, and uh, I've enjoyed quite a few years. Uh, uh, not always being successful, but uh, I was a target shooter for a long time. I did quite well on that. Uh, but uh, it's a good family sport, and uh, I'm just glad that you guys are doing what you're doing and informing people or maybe encouraging other people that are maybe uh, of my age that are thinking about putting away their equipment and not hunting anymore because that's a shame. Yeah, it no, is. Yeah, and we're losing. It's unfortunate because we are losing. Little by little, we are losing hunters, and I wish you know we could say it's going the other way, but... The way things are nowadays, it just seems like it's kind of uh, going away. Hopefully, it'll come back some more. But um, real quick, let's talk a little bit about your uh, your background, if you don't mind, like where you're born and raised. And well, I was born in Eagle Pass, Texas. Uh, my mom worked at the PX in the Air Force Base, and my dad was from Mexico when uh, came over, and uh, he worked in the cotton fields and that, and. Uh, uh, I remember as a young boy, uh, my dad telling me, maybe that's why I remember, put me in a gunny sack and we'd go out and he'd collect cotton in uh, Texas and uh, southern Colorado. Oh. I guess I had cotton fields down in there before. Uh, he finally got a job on the railroad, which uh, took us to California from Texas. And uh, we lived in Redding, California for a while. I uh, went to school in Truckee, California because he was a railroader and then he got bumped at that time. A, a person could bump another person, which meant that uh, they had more seniority uh, on the railroad. So my dad had to go and uh, do the same 
to somebody else. <laughs> so he went to Ogden, Utah, and we started out at Ogden, Utah. I lived there for uh, just a little while until my dad got his uh, job. Uh, of all places, Lucene, Utah, which is just on the, other, on the border of uh, Nevada, Utah, uh, where we went to school. We rode the uh, train uh, in the morning, uh, 101, and then the train back to uh, LeMay and Allen, where we lived, uh, different times, uh, 102, from school. Really? Ron Room Schoolhouse. Wow. And our teachers lived up in Gross Creek, Utah, which is uh, just on the uh, south side of uh, Idaho border there, too. Raft River furnished okay. the uh, yeah. power for that area, and a lot of you are familiar with uh, Raft River. Yeah. So. And uh, so uh, lived in Lucene for quite some time. My dad was working on a causeway across the Great Salt Flat, the dirt one that goes clear across at that time. When they finished that up, my dad says, well, we got an opportunity to move either to Ogden, Utah, or Montello, Nevada. Where would you guys like to go? <laughs> We'd been to Ogden, Utah, mainly just downtown all the time, so we didn't really like that, but uh, we told our dad that we wanted to move to Montello. Wow. So in 1959, uh, uh, in the summer of 59, uh, we moved to Montello, and that's where I stayed and basically grew up and uh, went to school there and do a lot. Uh, we had a high school there, but I was in junior high. My brother and I were both on the varsity team. My brother was just a little guy, and he was double zero. <laughs> and uh, his uh, 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 jersey, you could tie him uh, two people around that thing, so we had to tie it around him. But we both lettered, you know, on the varsity nice. team because they didn't have enough to play basketball and uh, we had a really good basketball team back in that those days yeah. and then uh, uh, later on they took the high, sc uh, high school away from us so my brothers and my sister well sisters and brothers we all rode the school bus uh, 51 miles one way wow so it was 102 miles uh, and the only way it was one mile because we got off the road there to Cobri which was a mile so 102 miles every day. Wow. So a lot of times we leave it uh, before the sun came up, you know, in the winter, and it, it was after the sun went down. So most of the time uh, we just spent doing our homework by lanterns. My mom and dad never had a, uh, a uh, just electricity then, and uh, we had an outhouse. A lot of people don't even know what an outhouse <laughs> is. It's a little bit better than going out behind a bush or something like that. But... Uh, yeah, those times were kind of tough. We had water in the house, but uh, we had oil stoves, but uh, oil lanterns and stuff like that. So it was quite the deal growing up, but uh, I think we had a good life. We played out in the desert. Uh, we'd go catch lizards and horny toes. And, you know, when a big rain come, a little pond that didn't have anything in it, somehow the frogs would come out of the soil, you know, because <laughs> of the moisture. But we had a good life there, and uh, I don't mind it. Uh, until I got old enough, and then uh, not too long, uh, actually when I was in high school, I won a 120-day delay plan and joined the Marine Corps. Oh, wow. Before that, I always wanted to join the Army. I always told my dad, for being a little kid, I don't know how I, I managed to say this, but I said, I'm going to join the Army and go and fight more. And I didn't know at that time that uh, I would be joining the service and, and going to Vietnam. So. It was quite a deal at that time, but uh, I took, uh, and uh, I didn't really know what I was going to do with my life after I graduated. I thought about going to bus driving school at that time. They had a good program back then. 
And then I thought, well, I'm just going to uh, go ahead and uh, go in the military and then see what comes out of that. So Was I, the Vietnam War already going on at that yeah, time? Yeah, the Vietnam War was going on pretty good. It started out around 65, somewhere in there, and uh, in 64, you know. But uh, we had troops over there and observers and stuff like that already over there. And uh, a good friend of mine had just come back. He joined the Marine Corps, and uh, he'd gone over there and got back in 1967. And he came home to Montella and he says, Gil, he says, I know that you're talking about maybe going into the Army. He says, I changed my mind and I'm going to the Marine Corps. He said, the only reason I say that, if you can go through the Marine Corps training, it's rougher for you, but you have a better chance of coming home. Mm -hmm. And I thought about it when he told me that, and I thought, well, I'll go ahead and try this. And uh, I went to Marine Corps. The Marine Corps training itself, the physical fitness part, even though I, I had a hernia at that time too, that I never got fixed playing the tag uh, football in Wales High School. But uh, I uh, went into the Marine Corps and, uh, you know, the physical part was not hard at all for me. I was in pretty good shape. But the uh, mental part, they break you down mentally and then build you back up so that when somebody says to do something, you don't even question it, just do it, you know. Mm -hmm. So that part of it was pretty tough because I always thought I was a pretty good kid at that time. And the drill instructors would get in my face and stuff like that. And then you got to remember in the 60s when you went into the military, it's a lot different than it is now. They could actually kick you, hurt you, and, oh. you know, and uh, say it was somebody else. Yeah. You know, so, uh, <laughs> you know, I try not to uh, dwell on that a, a lot, but uh, it made me a better person. And so I came out of the Marine Corps, or uh, boot camp. And then I, from boot camp, I went to uh, advanced infantry training, which was in uh, uh, Camp Pendleton, oh. and learned how to uh, be uh, a uh, combat veteran. I was 0311, which means I was up front. Uh, point man, I was uh, in the middle carrying radio, and then I was tail end Charlie, which was at the rear, just making sure everybody was tight and uh, we were good to go. So I did a lot of those things while I was in Vietnam and uh, only lasted four months before I got hurt. And that, uh, that was a bad time for me. Uh, uh, we did a rat patrol at night, stupid. I, I always told my uh, tank commander. I was 0311. I was in charge of a fire team. And the way I became a, in charge of a fire team, we had our, our gunner got taken out. So they had an M14. And uh, they asked who wanted an M14. And uh, I said, I'll take it because nobody else raised their hand. Little did I know it was an automatic weapon. And usually it was a machine gun or something like this. But mm -hmm. uh, at that point, you know, uh, it was an M14 uh, with a selector on it, so it was fully automatic. Oh. And they had uh, seven pouches. I had double pouches. I had 14 magazines, 20 rounds each. So I carried that because I really liked it when I was in boot camp, uh, training with it uh, on the firing range, too. I qualified with the M14 and the M16. And then, of course, uh, rocket launchers and everything else. We had to be proficient in just about every weapon that uh, would be in Vietnam. Uh, at that time, and not only were we uh, able to uh, shoot them, I'll actually take them apart in the dark and make sure that we can mm -hmm. put them back together. Because, you know, in combat, you never know when you have a little bit of time to clean that, clean your weapon. Uh, 
and you better make sure he can shoot. So, sure. so uh, and then on that, the M16 was coming out at that time. It was a Mattel toy, we called it. And the front <laughs> muzzle, muzzle brake was a more of a prong type deal. And uh, we, I just had issues with that. And then we, uh, later on, they came out with a forward assist. And some of you know, my, if you shoot uh, uh, M16s or something like that, the newer ones, uh, on the side, it's a little aluminum uh, deal that you could, uh, if the bullet wasn't going in real good, you could uh, hit that and you could get the bullet to go in. Oh. And we lost a, a lot of guys because they didn't have that forward assist uh, in combat, oh. especially in uh, situations where they were uh, going to overrun us or stuff like this. So, mm -hmm. uh, so the weapons came along pretty good, but uh, in my time, um, I was doing a rat patrol uh, assigned to a tank on a bridge. We had uh, heavy casualties. We went up and retrieved uh, uh, wounded and dead from 1-9. They got ambushed really bad up on one of the hills that we would uh, take 101 north uh, and 101 uh, south, or 182, 181. I'm trying to remember my numbers now, but uh, <laughs> uh, it was a bad area. Uh, the Walking Dead, which, which one nine Marines uh, left their dead, and we had to go back and retrieve them uh, after a while, and it was, it was a bad situation because we got hit pretty bad. We had two companies go up there, and we had uh, quite a few casualties. So rather than put us afloat, they put us on bridge security to guard the bridge on, on the highway going from uh, Quezon to uh, uh, the uh, pontoon bridge, as we called. So we would do convoys and do sweeps uh, on that uh, every now and then. And it was our turn to go out, and we had just gotten hit by about three different mortars, uh, no casualties or anything like that. But uh, we couldn't even see our hand. As, uh, about 9.30, uh, the... Uh, Tank commander comes over and says, we're going on a rap patrol. I says, I don't want to go. He says, well, you got to go. We have no choice. We have orders. And it was stupid because you go down the road, they can hear that tank coming, and there's a light on the front of the tank because you got to see the road. Hmm. But uh, we got ambushed, and uh, tank commander uh, got killed. I mean, not the tank commander, the tank driver. The tank commander was okay. And uh, the tank got, well, I got hit the first time uh, a mortar or something hit behind the tank, missed a tank, but got my legs. The next one was either a satchel charge rocket or mortar, we don't know, hit the track on the tank. And the tank is going forward. It hit the, uh, as you're driving, it hit the left-hand track. So what happens when you hit one track? As you know, that has a track, it'll pull to the other side. Yeah. So it pulled to the right, and that was the side that the, the cliff was on, that a river ran down. So the tank tipped over sideways, and uh, when it tipped to go down, down the ravine, my guys, we all flew off of the tank. We got bucked off, more or less. And the tank commander and his crew kept going down the hill, and the turret was pointing towards the bank at that time, which would have been to the left, and they used canisters, and I remember them saying that uh, one of the canisters pinned uh, one of the enemy into the bank. That's how uh, bad that thing could shoot. Hmm. And uh, so uh, I don't know what the, their casualties were, but I know that the tank commander lost a, the driver, and I, all the time I thought MIA was KIA, 
which is killed in action, the other is missing mm -hmm. in action. I didn't know that for a lot of years, and then I tried to reach out to him. Uh, went on the computer. I, my wife still doesn't know how I did this, but uh, <laughs> I was able to find the unit, and then I asked him uh, what happened to that, the tank crew, and they said, well, the tank crew's okay. They're not uh, KIA like I thought. They did lose a tank driver, mm -hmm. and they waited down there, uh, down below in the ravine, and what happened is the tank got uh, sideways in the canyon and couldn't go forward anymore, so it started digging in with the tracks, just going uh, one track was going and going and heated up. Pretty soon the rounds inside started touching off. Oh. That's how hot it got. So they waited until uh, some of the rounds were touching off and then there's a trap door in the bottom of the tank. They crawled out and, and went to uh, the uh, side where the track was and there's a berm there and they went over the top of the berm and stayed there all night. I didn't know that at that time. I was still worried about my guys. And... Uh, we did manage to get out of there, but it wasn't easy. And uh, I told radio men, click the mic two times, uh, let them know we've been hit. So they let the uh, tank uh, uh, crew knew that they could hear us, but uh, the base there was a LZ Hawk. And they sent another tank and a couple of uh, squads in front and behind. Was it daylight by no, this time? No, it was still dark. And it seemed, if you ever, it's kind of like waiting for... When you shoot a deer, you you get impatient. It seems like it seems like a long long yeah. time, right? But it it wasn't. But to me, it seemed like forever, and I was bleeding pretty good. And I had one of the guys put a my uh, battle dressing around my uh, uh, waist because I'd got hit in in the back, and I could feel the the uh, room uh, blood uh, oozing through there and. So I had him help me. I got my flak jacket off, and there was hardly anything left of it. Uh, it kind of reminded me of when you throw a rag in the fire and you go to pull it out, how it has all these holes in it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, that's how my flak jacket looked. And thank God I had it on or probably wouldn't be here now. But, uh, you know, it was one of those situations where you asked for help. I had a guy there. He helped me take my uh, flak jacket off, put a battle dressing on me. And I had uh, six grenades on, on me, and that's all we had. All the weapons were gone, and uh, we were fortunate that uh, those six grenades didn't uh, go off. If you know when you're sitting down, if you have a pouch on your side, what happens a lot of times, the pouch will go to the back. And I had a piece of shrapnel come into my joint in my leg. It was lodged in there, but it missed the pouch. If that uh, uh, piece of shrapnel would have hit those grenades, and I had six of them, there wouldn't have been anything left of anybody mm -hmm. there. But uh, we're fortunate, and I guess God guided uh, me and, and uh, the shrapnel, you know, but uh, uh, the shrapnel didn't hit the pout, so yeah. we were lucky. And mm -hmm. so I got the guy set out and told him to set up, you know, in case they come down, and he had six grenades. He says, pull, straighten the pens out, but don't pull it out. I said, get it ready, you know. And when you do, I says, don't pop the spoon off of it. Just pull the pin and then pull the spoon off and wait. I says, it's going to seem like a long time, but just wait a few minutes and then throw the grenade. I says, I don't want them throwing that stuff back at us. Oh, yeah. As it was, we didn't have to do that. The tank came, the radio man keyed the mic twice. They knew we were, whereabouts we were at. They came down looking for us with flashlights and they finally found us. 
One of my you guys, didn't have no lights probably at no all. No lights. We didn't have. I didn't have a flashlight. You uh, didn't know how bad you were no, wounded, or I didn't. Even, and I, I broke my uh, right uh, arm. They all in two places. I didn't even know it at that time, and I was used, trying to use my arm. Hmm. I didn't even know I'd broken my ulna in two places. And the radio man, and if you ever get in a place where something explodes to you really loud, you're kind of ringy anyway, and it sounds like you're in a can or something, and the guys are hollering at you, but it sounds like it's an echo, and it's kind of hard to explain unless you've been there, but uh, I could hear the radio man, he'd say, Hernandez, off me, and I could hear it, but it, it was <laughs> like he was far away, and, right. the, and the ringing in my ears was just really, really bad from all, all three explosions being so close to me, and uh, I says, I'm trying, I, I don't even, I, I just said it, I don't even know if it came out or not, but I was trying to get off the radio man, finally got off the radio man, and then, uh, of course, you know, the battle dressing came next, and, and then we got rid of the grenades, and it seemed forever, like I say, uh, a tank came, and there were guys, and they came down and got us out of there. It was one guy that I had, I don't know how bad he was, but he seemed to be just as bad as myself, or worse, because he was laying up closer to the maybe 20, 20, maybe not even 20 yards, maybe 20 feet from the top of the road, uh, they got him first, and then uh, they came to get me and, and load me on the tank. And I, I said, I don't want to get on that thing. I did not want to get on that tank, you know, after what just happened. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And the tank seemed to be having problems surging and stuff like that. But they finally got me on the front of the tank, and they went backwards the way they do. And we went back to LZ Hawk, and uh, they brought a chopper in there. And I don't know how many or how many times they went down there to get the rest of my guys or who was hurt. And to this day, I don't even know if any of them made it or who made it didn't make it. You know, it's one of those things. I went to a shrink one time, and they told me my mind is blocking whatever happened to protect me. Mm -hmm. And if you know uh, people that probably seen something really bad, it'll happen to them the same way. But uh, in a veterans, it happens quite a bit, so... Uh, I can't remember that a lot of that part. I was only in Vietnam four months. I went on uh, three different missions that I went on. Actually, the Tet was there in 1968. Uh, the opening of Pegasus was a highway and then uh, a road. And another one we had, and I can't remember what that one was. But uh, So in the four months I was there, we saw a lot of action, did a lot of things. Was that kind of the... Would you say it was the, towards the peak of Vietnam? Yep. Uh, 1967 was a real peak, the hill fights over, in, and I was in uh, I Corps, which is a North Vietnam, uh, and towards the DMZ and the North and to uh, and to North Vietnam. So in 1967, it peaked there uh, during uh, January. It was really bad. We lost a lot of guys in the hill fights, what they call. So when I came in in 1968, was the start of the Tet. So the start of the Tet was bad, too, with really heavy casualties. If you look at your history, uh, 1967 towards the last part and 1968 towards the Tet, that part, those two months, January and February, were real bad for mm -hmm. casualties uh, for uh, uh, U.S. troops. So, yeah, it was a bad time, not only in, in my area, but all the way... Uh, down from North, uh, well, DMZ down to South uh, Vietnam. So all that area was being hit. Uh, the cities were being hit. But, uh, 
you know, no place was uh, really going to be safe for yeah. anybody. But uh, yeah. uh, I ended up getting uh, heloed out that night, and uh, the double-bladed helo came in at night. I could hear it, and the dust was blowing around me, and that's that red dirt that they had all over in those places. And uh, I was on morphine. I know I was because I had a corpsman with me. It probably saved my life there. But the, I remember the helicopter coming above us. I could hear it. And I, I, would, I guess I was coming in and out. I thought I was awake all the time. But no, they said I was in and out of consciousness. And I remember the helicopter coming down. And for, uh, they had a, maybe the alt, uh, altimeter in the helicopter. But before he touched down, I remember he turned his light on. And it was bright light. And he shut it like a second just to see where he was at. Then he touched down. He hit touched down a little bit hard because you know you can't see at night. Yeah. And for them to to uh, run a helicopter at night like that is really not usually common. Mm -hmm. But we knew we had uh, heavy casualties there with my guys, and uh, so uh, they got me out of there and took me to Dong Ha, uh, which is a makeshift mash hospital, and. Uh, that same night, they got me there, and uh, and uh, I remember them put me on a silver tray. I call them trays because there were probably uh, places where they did surgery and stuff like that, rather than a bed or something like this. It's where they do all their surgeries. There was three of them in there, if I remember looking around, and sandbags cleared the top of the roof, and they cut all my clothes off and uh, felt my uh, chest. I had a collapsed lung, and they stuck a tube down in my lung to drain it. And then uh, I guess, I don't know, I heard that I died twice, but then they took me back to the morgue and uh, put me aside where they fingerprint uh, two guys that met Graves later. He was in there. Uh, they usually wash the bodies down real good and, and clean them up to make them presentable, and then put them in a plastic bag, and then... You see those aluminum cases or whatever they have. They'll send them back to the states, and then they'll do a, a, another uh, cleaning job, put you in uniform and stuff like that. I don't know if you've ever seen Ch Saving Chance or Taking Chance about a Marine uh, going back up to I don't remember if it was Wyoming or somewhere, but uh, the procedure they did on him is similar to the procedure they were doing on me. It's called what he said? Taking Chance. I'll have to watch that. Yeah. Uh -huh. And, I did uh, watch the video with you and Graves, and I, I couldn't remember if it was two or three times. I know you got passed back and forth. Well, right. that's well, that's what I say. And uh, I, I thought I only died twice, and then, uh, so Graves is working. Uh, Graves registration is what they call it, and that by the way, that became his motorcycle handle later on. And uh, he was quite the character if you ever ever seen the video. I but, uh, <laughs> uh, so I went there and he. Uh, they, I don't know, I must have moved or something. They said, no, this Marine's still alive. So they sent me back in there a second time. So I was on there. They pronounced me dead. They put me in grave registration. Uh, they're going to do fingerprints on me. So they sent me aside. So they didn't even get to, to me then, but they saw I moved or something. So they sent me back into, uh, into uh, surgery, and they <clears> look <throat> at me, and uh, they and those days they didn't have the equipment that we have now to sure. be able to tell if a person's breathing or even mm -hmm. got a pulse 
and I probably didn't have much of a pulse because I, I practically uh, bled out. I think I only had maybe a pint of blood left in me wow. is what they told me. So anyway, uh, the doctor there, doc, uh, Dr. Finnegan, he was a well-known heart doctor later on in uh, Philly. He goes, well, he's, uh, he's dead now. So they sent me back <laughs> to Gray's registration. And uh, he, he said, Gil, you never lost your place. We've just... Stuck you back over there on the concrete slab. <laughs> he said, you never lost your place. We said, okay, he's, he's gone, you know. So we're sitting there, and we're usually talking, and uh, we're doing finger pinning, and uh, Bill Boswell was the other guy's name there. I don't know why I can remember it, but Graves told me his name, Bill Boswell. He, him and Graves uh, both uh, doing uh, finger pinning, and, and he, uh, Graves says, hey, I got a bad feeling. I think I just saw that guy move again. <laughs> And he says, you know, a lot of times when you're in there, uh, bodies will move anyway as they're shutting down. Mm -hmm. They're twitching or their muscles are relaxing or something like that. I always told Graves, probably like a rattlesnake, you cut it off its head and it, it moves around. He says, <laughs> well, not that bad. You didn't move around that well. <laughs> so he says, I saw some movement. And he says, dude. Boswell, he says, I got a bad feeling about this guy. He says, that guy's still alive. <laughs> so he went over there and started beating on me and uh, using the techniques to uh, get the heart going again. And I I told him later, I said, so you beat the shit out of a dying man? He says, basically, I did. <laughs> he says, man, I just went to work on you and there was blood oozing out all of your holes and stuff like this. And uh, he says, this guy's still alive. Let's get him back in there. So they took me back into surgery, and the surgeons, rather than take a chance with, because Graves was really uh, not hesitating on the language he used, you know, <laughs> and about Good. the squids in there, not knowing what the heck they were doing, oh, or knowing what guys. they were doing, and and he went on and on. So he said, uh, and Dr. Finnegan, he, he writes a book, and he says, so rather than sending back in there and, and have to hear about it from the Marines, we thought we'd go ahead and open up. And they call me, in his book, he calls me Lopez. <laughs> and that book is in the, in the Company of Marines, written by Dr. Finnegan. Oh. And he calls me Lopez in there because he didn't, he didn't know my name. He just knew I was a, uh, a Mexican, and, you know, so they called me Lopez. <laughs> so, which is fine, you know, in the book. And later I tried to confront him on that. He said, well, I don't know if it was you or not, but uh, Graves knew it was me because he confronted him because he was the one that was working on me. Yeah. But, uh he didn't want to come out and admit that it was me in the book because he, I don't know if he thought I was going to try to take royalties or what. <laughs> yeah, really. Oh, Graves got really mad with him. And he says, well, you can't remember anything anyway now because you're too much, you're older, which he was, So, and we were all older. But uh, anyway, uh, he cut me open and he massaged my heart, and uh, they took s seven feet of small intestine out hmm. and sewed me back up. And I don't know what my large intestine looked like. I know they had holes in it, too. And uh, prepped me and set me aside. And he said, all of a sudden, you started, uh, and then put me some blood in me. And they gave me several pints of blood. And he said, all of a sudden, he says, you, you started moving and you started coming around. And he says, uh, in a few hours, you were doing really good. By morning, it was daylight anyway. Uh I was looking pretty good, so they put me on another helicopter, and Graves didn't know. He said, all I heard is when the helicopter would go up, he said, you would go out, die. 
And then when it come down, you were okay. So I must have been Changing going in pressure. and out. Yeah, the pressure, uh, yeah. altitude. And he said that helicopters didn't dare fly too low because they were still in, from there to where they were going before they got across the ocean there. The enemy could still shoot you down. And they love shooting helicopters down, I you bet. know, or yeah. even airplanes. But uh, so it, that's what he heard. So he never did know what happened. Later on, a few years later, uh, well, he tells a story uh, too that uh, he's the one that tells the story, and that's uh, later on. I, I, I also uh, joined the Veterans of Foreign Wars, and uh, they wrote an article on uh, <coughs> Vietnam veterans and PTSD, which I suffer highly uh, <coughs> with uh, and lived with for over 54 years, uh, 1968 when I got wounded, but. Uh, there was an article on there about uh, Vietnam vets and coping with uh, PTSD. And he'd asked one of his friends, uh, another Marine there, he says, can you do me a favor? He says, I know this guy's name is Hernandez. He says, I don't know what his first name is or if he even alive. So this guy that he asked, he has to go to the bathroom. He takes two magazines in, into the head with him. He's going to read, <laughs> you know, as we usually do. You know, that's our uh, company time. <laughs> but uh, he has two magazines. I don't even know what the other one is. He says, the one was a VFW magazine. And Gil, he says, your story in there about PTSD was highlighted in yellow. And that's how they do when they talk about a story. And he says, oh, man, he saw that. He says, oh, this is the guy that Graves looking for, oh, wow. Hernandez, you know. So uh, he went after he did his thing, and he, he called Graves. He says, Graves, he says, I found this guy. His name, his name is Gilbert Hernandez, or Gil Hernandez, they call him. And uh, you need to call him. So he didn't even wait for Graves to call me. He, I get a message from this guy. I don't know how I found my number and uh, contact him. Well, he was in VFW, so he might have called somebody. Yeah. But he didn't have my cell number at that time. But he called my home house number, left a message. My wife goes, you need to listen to this message. And I listened to the message. That's why we have a uh, answer machine. Yeah, an answer machine, because I want to make sure I hear messages right, because I rent the hall out, too, and I do other things, too. But uh, So I listened to this message, and it's this guy says, he says, Gil, you didn't die twice. You died three times. And he says, I want you to talk to this guy that was in Graves' registration, and he knows you personally. And I go, really? And I'm thinking, and I'm hearing this message, and you got to remember, you know, when you haven't heard anything like that for a while, and me being a Vietnam veteran, it just took me back mm -hmm. to ah. the time when I was in Vietnam. And I got to tell you, I had a heck of a time. I, I, bet. I had a heck of a time just thinking about all this. So I didn't call him that day. I think I waited a couple of days. And the phone number was on there. I called Graves on that phone. And uh, I talked to him. And we must have talked for an hour, you know. And, and I said, well, we got to meet. I says, I'm on the, uh, 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 I think I might have even been uh, department commander in 2007, 2008. I was a department commander for the Veterans of Foreign Wars for the state of Nevada. So uh, he said, we got to meet. I said, well, I'm going to Washington, D.C. Uh, because I'm on, the, uh, on this committee that I'm on. And he says, great. He says, maybe we can meet at the wall. So we thought that would be a good opportunity. Oh, yeah. After yeah. so many years, we finally met at the wall. And that's where that, uh, that video, video comes in. Patrick Humes, he's a true, uh, 
Chula, I think he was at. He's uh, also a Marine. He's a professional photo photographer for Rolling Thunder, and he also does a lot of his own stuff, you know, that he does for uh, different things, uh, Gold Star Families. Uh, POWMI is really heavy on that, but uh, he would happen to be on that bus. I mean, he got a bus. There was, must have been a 40 or 50 passenger bus, and he had everybody probably in Philly there, that uh, Darby, that he knew, and he had... Uh, uh, you talking about Graves? Yeah, Graves uh -huh. had this bus full of people, and his <laughs> wife, too, at that time, uh, Donna. And uh, he had the bus full, and uh, so I'm in Washington, D.C. anyway, so I, I told him what time I could probably get away from my other duties with the VFW. So I took a friend of mine, Mike Musgrove, with me, and uh, we went to the wall. And if you know how the wall is, we came in from the bottom end uh, facing the Capitol uh, or Lincoln uh, Monument. And uh, I was walking along there and, and uh, I thought, well, I don't know how I'll recognize Graves or not, but because uh, I didn't see a picture of him, I didn't really know what he looked like. And so I started walking down there and uh, a lady was standing right there where the V comes to the center of the wall down below and uh, had my hat on and my jacket, and she says, are you looking for Graves? And I says, I thought, yeah, well, who are you, you know? How do you know? <laughs> she says, are you looking for Graves? And I says, yeah, I'm looking for Graves. She's, he's on the other end waiting for you on that end. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> know how she knew it was me, but uh, right. so I says, well, okay. I said, I started heading that way, and uh, Mike headed with me, and uh, I met Graves, you know, uh, at the other end, and it was kind of an emotional uh, meeting, you know, uh, meeting the guy that uh, beat me up and saved my life, you know. <laughs> right. But, uh, and he had a really good friend that uh, got killed uh, in Vietnam while he was there, too. And as you've seen the story, he lost a whole bunch of his own guys there. Yeah. So he goes to the wall and pays his respect. But uh, this one guy that he went to school with in that, <clears throat> he had a picture of him there and he had some flowers and so him and I talked a little bit there, and uh, we try to get caught up, but it's kind of hard getting caught up with 50 people around you and uh, uh, people wanting to know what's going on. So Graves and I kind of stood there for a while, and we just answered a few questions that people had. Right. But uh, I had my jacket on that I had as commander, and I took it off and says, I just jokingly said, see, Graves, I says, I'm still in pretty good shape. He looks at me, yeah, you're pretty good shape, <laughs> considering, you know. But uh, we had a good uh, discussion there. And uh, since then, every year, my birthday was just April 25th. That's my barn on date that he saved me. Mm. Every year since we met, I call him up and thank him for giving me the life that I have. That's awesome. Because as you know, those that died young, 19 and 20, 18, 17, they're on that wall, mm -hmm. will never have the opportunity that I've had. I'll grow old, but they'll always stay the same. Mm -hmm. And you can look at that wall and you see a reflection of yourself, but you can kind of remember the guys that you served with, even though you don't know their name, because it wasn't appropriate for you to know that guy's name because he might not be there right. mm -hmm. in a few minutes or the next day. But uh, it's really a moving thing. It helped me out a lot to meet this guy called Graves. I happened to 
see him when we were there, I said, Graves, it's a good thing I didn't meet you sooner because I might not have liked you. <laughs> and he said, just like this, he says, hey, dude, what makes you think I would have liked you? And you've got to remember, this guy was uh, a member of uh, a really bad motorcycle uh, group. He was wanted in seven states. He was a druggie, alcoholic, you name it. He, he did the part. And he's been uh, clean for over 20 years now. Awesome. So I admire him for that. And uh, when his uh, wife passed away, what a sweetheart. My wife and her hit it off. And he uh, paid for our rooms, and we went to the boardwalk and uh, uh, on the uh, East Coast, and we stayed for a week, and everybody got along really good, and we just had a, we just had some downtime. He liked to run. I ran with him a little bit, and his wife made fun of him. She said, "What are you trying to do? Kill Gil now?" <laughs> <laughs> because you know I I can run, but not like he does. I mean, yeah. he's just awesome, and he has yeah. a, a no fat on himself. He's a kickboxer, and he trained his grandkids to uh, do the same. And He's just a fantastic guy. I mean, I wouldn't want to go up again. In fact, he trained cops. Oh, After really? all that ordeal with the cop situation, <laughs> I know I've seen that movie. I can't remember who's in it, but uh, uh, he pulls uh, pulls over a file cabinet and keeps the cops from coming in the room, and he goes out the other side door. That's basically what he did, but he didn't pull anything. He locked the door <laughs> when the sheriff came and asked him. He says, he says yeah, the sheriff called me up and says, uh, Graves, he said, I want to have a meeting with you. He said, I didn't think anything about it. But he said, you got to remember, I was run, uh, wanted in seven states. So he went in there and sat down in the chair, and he said, what you got going, chief? And he says, uh, the chief says, well, we're going to arrest you today. He said, what? <laughs> <laughs> he got up, locked the door, and went out the side door and oh, <laughs> took <hilarious>. off. Wow. <laughs> so it wasn't too long after that. He straightened himself out, but he... Uh, you got to admire him for this. He trained uh, cops on hand-to-hand situations, yeah. and uh, and one of his uh, uh, good friends when I went there worked for the police department there, and uh, thought the world of, of Graves, you know, and uh, for what he did for the police department and that. But uh, uh, and I met him uh, when I went to uh, meet him uh, later. I think it was maybe a couple of years later. We actually met. Uh, Graves and we went to the boardwalk. Uh, his wife, my wife, and I can't remember if he had kids there or not. But uh, it was an awesome reunion that we had there. And then uh, later, when his uh, wife passed away from cancer, it was really hard on him. I can't believe that he didn't go to drinking or doing other things. But uh, mm-hmm. it's the kind of person he is. And yeah. to this day, his wife is still in urn. He's waiting till the day that he dies, and he doesn't know why he's been given so many opportunities. Uh, and I think it's because what we do. Right. Both of us are veterans advocates. We fight for veterans, and we try to help out veterans, especially Iraq and Afghanistan veterans. And another thing that we didn't have in my time, we didn't have a lot of women serving in the military. Mm-hmm. But now, as you know, uh, the makeup of uh, uh, women in the military is big. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that I fought for when I go, and others that are in my position too, every state has a veterans advocate like myself. And we go back and we fight for veterans' rights, uh, women veterans' issues that they have because they're different. 
and the way they were treated. Uh, they would go to the VA hospital and they would say, uh, uh, what is wrong with your husband? And they would say, it's not my husband, it's me. And they would look at him kind of funny. So it took a long time before we got that straightened out. Now most females that go into, into the VA hospital are asked if they are the veterans. You know, they make sure that they're uh, respected mm -hmm. because they earn the same right. respect that, that I, ha I have serving mm -hmm. the, uh, our country in whatever capacity. So they're veterans, and uh, it hasn't been easy, but... Uh, the VA has come around and with a lot of different things, you know, uh, that we fought for uh, women. We have women on, uh, in, like in my position, so they, and we like that because us as males, we don't know what some of the situations that they go through that they need uh, care sure. for. So uh, we fight for them, and it's good to have uh, females on our committees also, and that's what we had a lot. Uh, one time is mostly males, but we had females come from every state, so many come, and uh, they got to address us there at the legislature, our committee, and tell us some of the things that are issues so we could bring them up to our representatives and see if they could knock that out. And So they're not issues. So yeah. But that's a, a lot of my part of my... Uh, my uh, story you know as a childhood going into military and uh you know i know we're, this is a archery type deal but uh nice. there for a while when i first got out in 1969 i got out i spent over a year in the hospital learning how to walk uh, uh they told me i'd never walk again my broken arm uh, was in a cast for about a year <laughs> it was broken in two places and uh shrapnel my rear and my back. I was in Oakland Naval Hospital for over a year. Do you still carry any Yeah, shrapnel? I still have shrapnel, and not too long ago I had a piece of shrapnel taken out of my rear, of all places. Really? So the guys kid me, oh, you were running, huh? <laughs> Hernandez, you were running. I know, you weren't fighting the enemy. I said, no. I said, that happened when I got it turned over in. by a blast from the side, and they start laughing. We're just kidding you. So... uh it feels like somebody holding a cigarette real close to you and how yeah. it starts burning a little bit. Well, my rear started having a spot there where it started getting hot. And I mean, it's a burning sensation. Like, And sometimes I'd turn around, make sure nobody had a lighter there or a cigarette. <laughs> and it wasn't there. But finally, I went into the VA. Uh, this is probably about five years ago. I still have trout working out. But yeah. uh, I went in and like talking about females being certain things i went in there for an appointment i thought well i'm going to get an appointment and they're going to give me a, an appointment date to come back so they can do surgery on my rear and take that metal out because they found out it was metal they did x-rays on it and i've got several other pieces back there too so uh i get on the uh, little gurney there and they uh probe me and take x-rays and uh i said so uh, when are we going to take this out and uh, I made a mistake earlier that two doctors come in there. Uh, I didn't know that at the time. One's a female. I just assumed that she was a nurse. So I go, uh, nurse, your nurse said that maybe they were going to take uh, the shrapnel out today. He says, 
uh, Mr. Anderson, I, just, I want you to know that's no nurse. That is a doctor. I said, oh, forgive me. <laughs> so, man, I was really trying to talk nice to her after that because I'd open my mouth like, you know, we do sometimes. <laughs> so she has me down on the gurney, and uh, I'm thinking, uh, she says, we're going to pull it out right now. And I says, you know, I didn't mean that comment earlier about you being a nurse. <laughs> Man. He says you're going to be not you're going to be fine. <laughs> so they took the piece of shrapnel out right then and there that I didn't know. I figured they'd schedule me for surgery or something. No, right. she gave me some deadener around there, and I could feel her tugging. You know, and it took quite a while of her pulling it on there and cutting uh, around her. And if if you see sometimes you have a splinter or something like this, or yeah. something gets in you, what happens? The body will form like a uh, callus around there. Hmm. It's like when you get a callus from working too hard, some of you, uh, <laughs> on your hands. Like scar tissue Yeah, type scar stuff. tissue. Well, yeah. it'll form a scar tissue, and it's a protective uh, ring or a pod around this shrapnel. And she was trying to cut all the roots away from it and uh, get it out of there, and she was having a heck of a time. So she was pulling on with those uh, forceps that are locked, and I could feel her pulling on it. Finally, she got it cut out, and... Uh, it was a piece of shrapnel as big as a 38 uh, bullet head. Yeah. Most of you can relate to that. Huh. So, uh, and she gave it to me. She said, here's another souvenir for you. <laughs> but uh, she was pretty good about it. Uh, washed it up for me. And I have it in my shadow box that I have at home mm -hmm. with my other pieces of shrapnel that I have. But, you know, it's one of those things where you're thankful. Yeah, I, I still live with shrapnel in me. Yeah. Uh, a lot of it is in my gut area. Does it ever... Yeah like work its way out yes to where it has you can worked. pick it out yourself yep and then i had uh, stainless steel stitches in my stomach because uh uh when they did the surgery they put me back together they cracked one of my intestines so they had to go back in there i think while i was in japan and japan they kept me longer than what they should because they didn't know i was going to make it oh. so i was really having some issues and one of those was a cramped intestine at the time so they went back in there did surgery on that so they I call them noodles. They had a row of noodles, and then underneath they had used stainless steel uh, stitches. Mm. So for a long time, I, I would my clothes would get caught on them because they'd poke out, mm -hmm. like just like a little wire, you know, or yeah. you know uh, something that gets hung up on you. But uh, so uh, I'd have those every once in a while. They'd tug on those and clip them and pull them out. But same with the shrapnel. I've had shrapnel come out of my legs. Uh, none out of my arm and in my back I've had shrapnel mm -hmm. come out of my back. I can remember my grandpa was in World War II and he had shrapnel and I, I remember as a little kid it, as I was a little kid he it had come to the surface of his forearms and stuff yeah. and he would end up just picking it out of there. Wow. Pretty crazy. He a got lot, blowed up pretty good. Yeah. Did he too? Yeah, yeah. Well a lot of times they don't want to go in especially with much shrapnel I had sometimes it's best just leave it alone. That's it. I've heard and I had a piece of shrapnel that was on my spine I didn't know it till later and I went to the VA and they took it out because it was in a place where it was eating my spinal it would it ate to my spinal cord so it was eating the uh, bone tissue uh, of my spine so they had to remove it but uh, yeah they don't want to go in there and put you through more surgery than they have to. So anything that's available to pull out right then and there, they'll do it. you got to remember this is kind of a mass unit. Mm -hmm. So they kind of put you together trying to get you 
so you'll survive basically. Mm-hmm. And then later on, they'll evaluate you. Like myself, they've evaluated me several times on different things that I've had to have done and work on you and uh, remove it if it's necessary at that time. But uh, a lot of times they just leave it in there. From the time you got uh, injured until you actually made it back to the States, how many, how, how much time was there? Do you know? Well, uh, from uh, from Yokosuka, Japan, I was there probably three weeks, and that's really uncommon, and they don't like to keep you there. They want to ship you back to the uh, States. And what they do is they ask you, uh, who do you have that lives close to one of these hospitals, Walter Reed, or in this case, Oakdale Naval Hospital, which is no longer there. It's a Navy hospital. And my choice was a Navy hospital at that time because I had an aunt in Hayward. So they... They want to get you as close to family members because you recover a lot faster being around family. Mm-hmm. Family uh, visiting you, it helps encourage you to want to get better. And uh, But I remember it was like two weeks, and then they put me on a big uh, C-135, or it was like a hospital plane. There was uh, three rows of gurneys in that thing, and it was full, and this is... Uh, a big plane that they can put, you know, big trucks in, probably oh. five or six uh, uh, troop haulers in there. And there's that many beds. I was on the bottom bed because I had to have suction and oxygen and everything else. The better you are, the higher you're put up. If you mm-hmm. have a broken leg or shrapnel in the leg or broken arm uh, from shrapnel or not as bad, they put you on the top bunk. And then the second, I was on the bottom one because I was one of the worst ones. So I flew from Japan all the way to, I want to say, uh, I can't remember what base is up there, El Toro or somewhere up there. But I remember, you got to remember, this is the 60s, and uh, there was a lot of protests going on. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, being on that gurney, and they had uh, like a school bus, a bus with gurney holders uh, along the walls. And I, can't, I think that was only too high in there, but I was on the bottom and as I was being brought out, I, I remembered that uh, I could hear people hollering. And then even when we were going through the gate, you could hear people hollering at uh, Vietnam vets. And here we were on gurneys and that, and they were still hollering at us, calling us baby killers. I remember that and a few other choice names and words. But I don't know why I remember that. And then I don't remember anything until I got to the hospital. But I remember that. and. Hmm. Uh, what a memory that is. But I, uh, I remember being treated like that. And then uh, staying in that hospital. I was in the hospital for over a year, but I got to go home. Uh, when I went to Vietnam, I weighed 170, and I was in pretty good shape. Uh, when I came back, at, when I was at Jukuska, uh, at I weighed 107 pounds. Wow. So I'd lost 70 pounds in all this ordeal. And uh, I don't know if they weighed me there or in when I got to Oakland, but I weighed 107 pounds from 170. You could count each rib uh, in my body. My legs didn't look like there was any meat on them at all. They looked like just bones. I looked like a skeleton, really, with a little bit of meat on them, on my body. And I remember there, and uh, I get kind of emotional when I tell this part of it, but... uh, my aunt finally got a hold of, or they got a hold of my aunt, and my aunt wanted to come and visit me. And I didn't want her to come and visit. And the worst thing was, 
you got to remember from Montello, uh, Utah border, to Oak Oakland, California. My mom and dad never had uh, a car. We didn't have a phone. So for them to get to Oakland, they had to take the train. And I had uh, my little baby brother. He was like, I don't know, maybe five or six years old, if that. But uh, going to the hospital and my mom, I knew my mom and dad were coming and uh, I didn't want my mom to see me like that. I didn't want my aunt to see me the way I was, skin and bone. And I was in one of those circular electric beds because I had damage to my back and my gut. So they would rotate me so I wouldn't get uh, bed sores and mm -hmm. stuff like this. I don't remember how long I w was in that, but uh, I was in that for a, a long time. And when my aunt came to see me first, I cried. Because I didn't want her to see me like that. And I hadn't seen her for probably about 20-something years. But she was a character. Hmm. All the guys liked her. She had mini skirt on because that was the mini skirt generation, and all the guys thought my aunt was hot. I didn't tell my uncle that, but but That's uh, hilarious. my aunt would uh, bring Mexican food in to us. Uh, she would smuggle beer into us. <laughs> my friends liked that, especially my one friend later that I found out I bet. that was with me when we went up and retrieved uh, one nine's body. He got wounded that day. I didn't know that he almost bled to death. I thought he was in better shape than that. We brought him back to the rear and left him. I almost left him to die, but uh, he lost his hand later on because of that. But uh, he was like my guard. Anything I wanted, he would walk in front of my, I could see him. And there was a saying that we had, we had badass gyrene. And, and so one time when he was walking by, I guess he must have seen a, my record or knew it was Hernandez there and he knew me because uh, we'd gone through training in that, and uh, we went to uh, Vietnam together. He goes, Hernandez, is that you, you badass gyrene? I says, yeah, that's me. Who's this? Is this a tail? I says, oh, you badass gyrene. <laughs> <laughs> so he kind of took care of me, and that's the way we talked to each other, you know. But uh, uh, I was worried about him. He'd take my Darvon for pain. I didn't want to get hooked on morphine. I was on morphine. And later they put me on Darvon, you know, for pain. And uh, he'd say, you're going to take that? And I'd go, nope. He'd say, okay. So later he became addicted to it a little bit. But uh, And then I was on a beer ration since I didn't have very much weight. I could have a, uh, a beer at lunch before my meal and at, one at dinner. So the uh, first time I had a beer, man, I thought, man, it's going to get wiped out. I only had a couple of drinks of it. <laughs> but... He'd say, you're going to drink that? And I'd go, no, go ahead. So he'd, he'd drink it. Was this smuggled beer or were they did No, this was you... beer that the uh, hospital actually gave me. Oh, oh yeah. That's the military cool. gave me this for weight, uh, appetite. Oh, okay. So it was a, a government-issued deal. And then uh, I smoked, too. I smoked about two packs of cigarettes a, a day, you know, in Vietnam. But sometimes we only had the little five or six-pack uh, cigarette deal. But uh, so I was smoking... Uh, and uh, I remember asking the doctor one time, I says, God, when can I have a cigarette? Because, you know, I was still craving cigarette. I had been there for a while. He said, I'll let you know when you can have a cigarette. And I still had a, a tube in my, a drainage in my lung, if I remember right. And then they took that out finally, and they got me up. And I couldn't, couldn't even walk. I had two nurses or uh, 
male or female, and they helped me walk, and I couldn't because my leg, my left leg was in a cast because I later lost a, a toe, and uh, you know it was uh, kind of hard for me to get around. But uh, finally, the doctor says he come in one day, said, "Okay, Hernandez, you can have a cigarette." And he lit up, you know, at that time, he lit up for yeah. me. And he, he came over there and sat down with a pack of cigarettes, sir. And he set the pack <clears> of cigarettes <throat> on my bed, and he says, here you go. He took a drag out of it, and, he, and I don't even know if he smoked or not, but I took a big drag out of that cigarette, and, man, I started coughing. That cigarette about killed me. <laughs> and I was hollering, and I think I cussed at the doctor. I said, you trying to kill me? And I threw the cigarette out in the middle of the hall because it was a barracks-type deal. And I threw the pack of cigarettes out there, and I never touched another cigarette after wow. that. Mm. Wow. I quit right there. Gold turkey. Yeah. So, but it was one of those situations where, man, I wanted a cigarette bad. But after you that, my <laughs> stitches were I hurting. Bet. I was wondering. And I grabbed wow. a pill. He gave me a pillow fine, and I, after I coughed a few times without it, and it felt like my gut was just going to come out of my stomach. And mm. I mean, I'm coughing. Talk about a come to Jesus moment right there. <laughs> Man. So that was my experience with the cigarette. Mm -hmm. Teo, of course, he he later got married about the same time I did, and uh, his wife helped him out a lot. Uh, I, I got to finally see him, uh, oh, uh, probably 15 or years later. He lives in Rollins, Wyoming. He's a one-handed uh, mechanic, one of the best, well, maybe the only mechanic there, but... <laughs> <laughs> he tears the engines down and everything else. He had a Harley, and he, I think he sold it. He, he had a Harley before he went into service, and he was going to try to figure out how to be able to uh, ride the Harley with a hook and stuff like that, but I don't know if he ever did or not. But I met him, and what a turnaround guy. I always thought he'd end up in prison or something because we were in the uh, bar one time. you got to remember some of these uh, Korean uh, veterans. They were hardcore too, but it was a Navy guy sitting on a stool, and Teo and I come in the bar, I'm kind of limping in one, and he's got his uh, hook on. He's left-handed, and uh, we go in there to have a beer. <clears throat> I don't remember what time of the day it was, probably 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And we go in there, and this uh, guy made a comment about Vietnam vets and how, you know, we didn't deserve what we were we were getting. We didn't deserve anything, and my friend Teo... Uh, reached around there and with his left hand, uh, hit him with his hook. Hit him oh. in the temple of the head. I thought, oh shit, he kind of probably killed this guy. Yeah. And that guy just rolled right off the stool like you see in a movie, I mean like right now. And he's face down on, uh, on the floor and I'm going, oh shit, we gotta get out of there. And the bartender's uh, saying the uh, MPs and the short patrol are coming and you guys are you know, going to jail and everything. We ran out that door and we're hobbling up. I'm hobbling up. He's ahead of me, pulling me, and we get up to by where our room is because it's a barracks type and it's all wooden uh, decking and everything. We finally make it up there. We get in there. There's a big puzzle at the end of the room, a round table, and took our robes off because he knew we had our robes on. They didn't know our names in that, and they didn't. I don't know if they knew that. Well, had had known that he had a hook on that side, but. We didn't get our beer, but uh, we got back to the back, and we played like we were putting a puzzle together. <laughs> here comes the law, short patrol MPs. Have you seen two guys going through here, up around here? We said, well, we heard two guys going up, running like, 
you know, a bat out or whatever up there. So, okay, thank you very much. And we, we got out of that one. But I thought for sure, I don't know if, whatever happened to that guy, but I thought for sure my friend Teo had killed that guy. Oh, wow. I mean, he was doing the, the fish out of water dance, you know. And oh. I'm going, oh, man, I don't know if he was having a seizure or what, but uh, I guess... You don't say that to him, you know, <laughs> especially with a hook. Yeah, really. <laughs> he had a, what you call a hook shot. <laughs> but, a left hook. Yeah, real left hook. <laughs> but that was my experience with that part of it, you know, uh, that you asked. But I would imagine you, you probably get a lot more respect now like you deserve oh, uh, now. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's... Well, it's us. The Vietnam vets made it possible for right. Iraq... Our Desert Storm, Iraq and Afghanistan, you see how they got treated. We spoiled them. But I never said as a Vietnam vet, I'm going to make sure this never happens to another generation. It's like the way we lived and we had to live that we kind of all made our own promise. And it was the same promise mm-hmm. that we basically made when we got treated that way. We would never let another generation get treated like we did. So we never did. Um I'm kind of ignorant as far as like the different wars as far as that did did other um did a lot of other wars there was a lot of drafting going on as much as the Vietnam War or was the Vietnam War like one of the most one of the the wars that more people got drafted you know what I mean I I think so uh, maybe so because like during World War II a lot of uh Veterans joined the military like 9 Yeah. You know, they joined. They didn't yeah. ask. Um, yeah. It was kind of so pre to that, Korea and uh, World War II veterans that I can think of were like the ni- our 9 one Yeah. Mm-hmm. My dad was, a, he was, he was in the Korean War. See that? And, and he, he actually forged his birth certificate a yeah. year to join. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I guess that back in those days, it wasn't that uncommon. People really wanted to join, you know. Yeah, you had fifteen and sixteen year old kids. That's what he was. Yeah. He was sixteen, yeah. and he was actually fifteen, forged us to sixteen, and had to get his parents' permission to join. Well, hmm. well and you can imagine, uh, like when the, the Japanese uh, bombed Pearl Harbor and what they did. And basically, if you go back, I don't like comparing wars to other wars, but you look at nine uh, eleven, what they did with the twin towers and, and the other plane. It it kind of brought young people that were of that age, uh, a sense of, uh, I don't want to say it, a sense of pleasure wanting to serve their country for what had happened. In it was other on words, our a soil. payback. Yeah, it was, on a, it was like a payback. Yeah. So uh, during my time, there was, uh, as you know, uh, a lot, not a lot, but some veterans or some people that were of age burnt their uh, draft cards. Or they went to Canada to avoid the draft. Uh, but uh, I, I signed up for, I knew where I was going, but uh, what the Marines did was kind of unique. Uh, uh, some of the guys that I went in with, we were all lined up. And uh, I knew this because it was a fact, but uh, I'd heard about it. They said, okay, all of my Marines that signed up for the Marine Corps, take one step back. So we took one step back. Sometimes they'd do one step forward. And then uh, he'd go down the line, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, and clear to the end, and he says, okay, and he might do the twos or might do the ones. He says, all ones are now Marines. And you should have heard the cry, you can't do that to us. 
we got drafted in the army. No, you may have been, you were drafted. Mm. Wow. So they got drafted into the Marine Corps. And then uh, those that got drafted in the army, you know, they usually only had to do like the two years because they got drafted for two years or mm -hmm. in some cases one year, but I can't remember what exactly it was, but they were drafted. And that's what happened. Some of them that thought they weren't going to have to join the Marine Corps, but uh, that's the way they did it. Huh. Yeah, there was uh, uh, probably more uh, draftees at that time because of the protests and a lot, uh, a lot of the, probably the ones serving that didn't volunteer for, uh, probably didn't want to go to war, so they got drafted and mm -hmm. they didn't go to Canada. So yeah, that was probably the the bigger one. I don't have any stats on that, but I'm probably sure that that's probably the. You don't rem You don't really hear much about uh, drafting, like uh, in the previous wars or whatever. You hear. But but Vietnam War, it was like, you know, I was pretty young then, but I do remember families we knew, and you'd hear so-and-so's kid got drafted, you know, yeah. and stuff. And, and Well, it was a bad time. And in 1967, going into 1968, is you, they needed bodies over there. Yeah. So they cut the mine, mine, mine amount of boot camp, I think a week or two, and then my advanced infantry training, they cut it short, too. And my drill instructor said afterwards, we went back for a reunion, my outfit did, to uh, uh, Camp Pendleton, and, and they said that was the worst thing we did is cut the time down of training. But they needed bodies I'll say over they there. needed it. Huh? Yeah, they needed bodies over there regardless. You know, they just needed a body over there, and we lost so many so many guys during that time. Because of that, of huh? training, yep. No. Did you, you went through your full training? I didn't go through full training. Hmm. I got you cut either, short huh? too. Oh wow! So, and I think the uh, just latter part of '67 is when they started cutting the amount of time mm. that you went into boot camp and then advanced infantry training. Wow! So then I went to jungle training in uh, Okinawa, <clears throat> where they taught us uh, booby traps and stuff like this. And then, if not to be caught, but if you were a prisoner of war, mm. our main objective was not to get caught. Yeah. But if we did get caught, they, they taught us different things. You know, one of the things that they taught us is that uh, if at all possible, you try to escape, you know, and then remember your surroundings so you could report back. Mm -hmm. So, And that's the way we were trained. But, uh, yeah, they worked on us pretty good on that in that part. So I'm glad they didn't cut that short. But, uh, yeah, they took us to Okinawa, and then from Okinawa, they flew us out of there and went to Hawaii, and then from Hawaii, I went I think it went to Vietnam from there. Hmm. So you got to go to Hawaii. <laughs> it was a refueling and pilot change. <laughs> we got off the plane. They had guards at the, end of the uh, airport to make sure nobody left. <laughs> I go, yeah, it was, it was peachy. I've been to Hawaii. Yeah, yeah that's In that airport, serious. it was open in the top. Where they put us, they took us from their plane, and we could go up these stairs, and it was all like a big deck up on top. It was open. And that's where they let us hang out. <laughs> they didn't have a pop machine or anything like that. No oh, contraband. Man. Oh, man. We got to just get off and relax or, you know, get off for a while until they refueled the plane and got a new pilots and stuff like that. And then we went on, you know. <laughs> no uh, beach time. No beach time. <laughs> we could see the beach. <laughs> yeah. When you got back to, you know, to California where you stayed there and got better, and then you, is that when you relocated back to? Did Montello. you Montello? Is that yeah. when you came back then? 
I, uh, after I got out, you know, everything, they gave me a discharge after a year in the hospital. I came back to, uh, I went back to Montello, and I can't remember, I want to say I wore my uniform, but they told us not to wear our uniforms. Because of all the protesting. Yeah, and stuff. it was not politically correct, and yeah. uh, we would be harassed, or, and uh, if they knew me, uh, I would love it, but uh, <laughs> I wasn't in fighting shape, though. Yeah. I mean, they could have probably done something to me, but I remember I took a, I can't remember, I think I took a, I think I took a bus, and I can't remember, or they flew me to Salt Lake. And from Salt Lake, uh, I took a, a Greyhound, I guess. And I went to Wales, and I knew the bus would be going to Montello because it was a school bus. And oh. I knew they would probably let me ride the school bus. Mm -hmm. And they did. Hmm. And, uh, all right, no, I'm, in fact, I can't remember if I went to Wales or if I got dropped off at Oasis, which is a connector road to Montello. Yeah. Route 23. I can't, it seems to me I might have done that. And the bus picked me up. Hmm. Did me your home. parents, were you able to get a hold and let them know you're coming home and all yep. that? Yep. My mm -hmm. mom and dad, after several visitations to the hospital, and I got to tell you this part, as, as a young boy, my baby brother, he uh, does stuff with that Bird Bound program in Reno uh, for veterans. He never, no one else served in the, in the military after I got hurt. Huh. I don't think they wanted to pick on anybody in my household because my two brothers, they had really low numbers in the top 20, if, they, if I remember right. But they had deferments because they were going to college. Oh, yeah. So, but and then again, because I was hurt so bad, they never uh, uh, called on them to serve in the military. So my baby brother... Uh, it's just a little guy then, and uh, you got to remember somebody. If you know any kids who are five years old, or you think about your own kids at that age, being traumatized by seeing hmm. somebody with no arms, no legs, uh, bandaged, bandaged up totally, or mm -hmm. in some cases, you know, uh, their faces. Uh, deformed, you know, until they get the plastic surgery on them, completely mm -hmm. re rebuilt. Uh, my baby brother was that way, and he, he tells me to this day sometimes, he's saying, I have PTSD, he says, because what I saw. And I said, well, you could have, because that was something else. Mm -hmm. Here he got a, a young kid growing up in a, you know, small town, not even a town, you know, it's a ranching community or whatever, yeah. railroad community, and to have to see something like that, you know, Think of your own kids having to see something like that. But he wanted to be with me, see me. But he never forgot that. And uh, he remembers when the uh, car at that time, if you see uh, Taking Chance, you'll see a car come up. And the military got away from that later. They had uh, them come in car, uh, taxis or other modes. Because when you saw that green car, you knew something bad was coming up. And they parked the green car oh. in front of your house. That meant you either died or something bad happened. Mm -hmm. In my case, it was something bad happened. So they, two officers came to Montello, and my baby brother was down at the gas station. And he heard him talking to the gas, uh, guy that owned the gas station was Al Stancil. And he heard him talking. He just said, you know where the Hernandez Estrada house is? And they, they go, yeah, just down the road. And my baby brother was there, and he was in the back. He saw this car, and he just kind of stayed back and listened to what was going on. Uh, so we said, we got some bad news. We need to see the Hernandez family. And 
So my baby brother ran from, it's about a block and a half, down the alley, beat those guys in the car to my house. So he already knew what was going to happen. And my mom and dad were both home. I think it was on a weekend. And uh, he heard him come to the door and uh, they told my mom what had happened, that I'd been wounded really bad, but I was getting the best care of it. And they would try to keep me posted as I got better or something happened. But uh, my brother, my baby brother, uh, and I had it posted at one time, but he writes a story, uh, and it's called The Green Car. And it's basically a story of how he felt when that green car came to the, to the house. And I've shared that story with uh, a lot of people. And I put it on Facebook once, but I shared his story of how he felt uh, being a young boy, maybe five or six years old, uh, and having to uh, hear hear them come up to the house and say something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of things that told me I, I need to write a book. I didn't write a book, but uh, my story is kind of like this story here is, that we're talking about. The Library of Congress uh, did a story on uh, Vietnam vets, and I got another guy to go, and then he told him my story, and, no, you need to go, and I didn't, I just, I was working, so Cowboy Poetry, I, I'm a van driver. So I said, no, I'm not going to go. And then finally they talked me into going. Two different times we tried to do a, like this, uh, a filming of it. It never worked out. The third time was a charm, I guess, because uh, at the college uh, during Cowboy Poetry, they, they did this for a, a lot of their veterans, not just myself. But uh, they wanted to do my story. And we're like probably here. We talked for about six hours, five or six hours. Mm. I mean. It's amazing. I don't know how much time we've uh, yeah. been here. We're not but worried about it. I know, but, but you don't yeah, even think back, about it, it when you're talking, you know, you're just yeah. talking and uh, right. time goes fast. And yeah. I, I couldn't believe I'd, I'd talk that long. <laughs> kind of like, a lot to say. Kind of like right now, you know, you start, start on a subject and it uh, brings memories about something else. But uh, yeah. yeah, I talk. Uh, oh, so my story is what I wanted to say is in the Library of Congress. Uh, you can do my name, Gilbert Hernandez. And there's a, a place that uh, my story is kind of like here. I talk about my childhood kind of like a little bit here and uh, about different phases of, of my life coming back and uh, uh, not it like this that I'll talk about getting into archery, you know, after being a rifle hunter too. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's uh, one of those things that uh, you do. And uh, I didn't write a book, but I do have... Uh, oral history right. yeah. in the Library of Congress. That's oh, wow. really cool. And then plus, you guys had an opportunity to see Grave Story. He's a wild man. You can think yeah. he, you see why he is the way he is, but right. he's got PTSD really bad, but he's been dealing with it, and you know the things he does for veterans, I think, helps him a lot. But, I bet. I bet yeah. you too. I know oh, yeah. you said that. It does help a lot. You're give, yep. giving back for sure, and you've probably helped... So many more people than you realize touch so many people's lives in a positive way. And, and you just said it right there. I don't need to write a book. Everybody that I ever talk to is part of my story. And they're, they got their story that we've had an opportunity to share. Yeah. Just like you guys. Yeah. You guys will have a, my story and is your story because you got to talk to me and yeah. and mm-hmm. listen to what I have to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But not only that, but we're trying to reach uh, other people out there. And the reason I tell my story 
no matter how bad you get hurt or how bad it seems that you want to take your life, like some of my friends have, that I wasn't able to help, you can live through it. And like the doctor told me when I wanted to die, I said, Doc, I want to die. I kept telling him that. He says, Marine, I want to tell you something. He says, it hurts to get better. And that was so true. No matter what situation you're in, whether it's uh, dealing with wounds or wounds from what people say to you, it hurts to it's get better. Mentally, physically, or mentally. Huh? Yeah. And people work on you differently uh, than myself being wounded. People hurt our kids or people that we love and they take their own lives is because, you know, it, it hurts to get better. And that's why I said that. And I'm hoping that me telling my story, they see what I've gone through. And let me tell you something, I hurt for over a year. And sometimes I still hurt as I get older because those wounds start creeping up on you. And, and Mr. Arthritis mm. comes in there and stops you from doing a lot of things too. But that's my encouragement is to anyone that's been hurt either by a, you know, accident or a wound of kind or mentally by a bully or somebody that tried to make them feel smaller than what they are. Each one of us is our own individual and never give up. Never t let somebody tell you you can't do something like I was told that uh, you probably can't do that. Well, I would never walk again. Here I am walking. Uh, if you have the uh, determination and and God, you know, I got to give uh, thanks. My mom was real religious, and she'd always say prayers for me. And, uh, and so maybe uh, God's faith that I was there. And as you know, I, I honestly believe that my outdoors is my church. Mm. I don't go to church. Mom had me go to catechism when I was younger, but my brother and I would hide at... Uh, when we were little kids, we'd hide behind the incinerator out and back from the, <laughs> the priest so we wouldn't have to go to catechism. <laughs> he got smart and caught us at the back door one time because <laughs> my mom told him what we were doing. Yeah, that's hilarious. <laughs> so, yeah, a moment of uh, laughter there. 